Welcome, everybody, to the Scripture Chronicles. This is the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. I'm Dylan. Joining me is none other than Corey Howitt. Corey, how's it going? Going good. And I'm especially stoked. Well, one, we're recording this the week after Christmas, so that's been pretty fun. And a little late Christmas present, we get to start Exodus. It's pretty sick to actually have made it through a book in the Bible. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, we are excited to be able to be starting Exodus today. Can't believe we've actually made it through an entire book of the Bible. Uh, I am very excited that the podcast has been going as long as it has and has been as successful as it has. And definitely very blessed because of that. We're going to be jumping into Exodus today. As per usual, these episodes do build on one another. That being said, if you're a first-time listener, you're jumping in on the ground floor of a new book. If you would like to go back and listen to all of the episodes preceding this one, this one does build on a bunch of stuff from Genesis, but if you don't have the luxury of being able to do that, jumping in today will be a good place to get going in Exodus itself. So, With that, we covered all of Genesis. In last week's episode, we did a full recap of the book. And so instead of doing our customary recap, we did that already of the entire book. So we're going to just jump into Exodus. So let's go ahead and get started. Corey, let's uh, let's go. Yeah, so as we start in Exodus 1.1, we have the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Right, so it names off the sons of Jacob, minus Joseph, because Joseph was already in Egypt, um, which we see in verse 5. Also in verse 5, it says the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. And so this is just kind of important in other books, recounting um, Jacob's trek into Egypt and that 70 persons and um Right now, um, that seems like a lot because we are just starting from one guy, Abraham, and now we're at 70. And Jacob himself exclaims uh, in a few episodes back in Genesis saying, wow, my camp has become great. I'm going to call this camp where we're camping Mahanim because God has made us two camps. Um, But this is going to be a big point of looking at what Israel was no longer the person, but the amount of people, the nation that's, well, group of people becoming a nation. And we're going to look back on this 70 persons point and say, wow, what a humble beginning. Um, But verse six, Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. And verse seven, we see um, some really key words that should make us think of other parts of the Bible. So. Uh, Verse 7 reads, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And that sets off um, some buzzers to Genesis 1. When God creates man and woman, he says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. So now um, Exodus 1 is starting out good. It's starting out like Genesis 1. And people are actually listening to the first words of Scripture. Be fruitful and multiply. And they are doing that in this place. We see in chapter 1, 
that this really sets the tone for Exodus, but also does build on Genesis. So like Corey was already saying, at the end of Genesis, we are left off with one family entering Egypt. And so as this podcast has consistently said over the past, we believe that the scriptures are meant to be read as a unified story. Well, it is very much the case then that when reading Genesis and Exodus, you can see how they're connected with one another. Where now in Exodus, we're actually jumping right off of the place that we left off in Genesis into a new book, building on what had already been said in Genesis. However, instead of only having one family now, we see that that family has multiplied. And that is going to be kind of a major crux of the issue at the beginning part here in Exodus as we move on. So in chapter one, we see in verse eight that there is a new king who arises in Egypt, one who did not know Joseph. If you went through Genesis with us, you'll know that Joseph was set up as basically second in command over Egypt under the previous pharaoh. However, now there is a new pharaoh who has arisen. Joseph has passed away. The old pharaoh has passed away. And this guy doesn't care about who Joseph was. And in two episodes prior to this one, Corey and I talked about how a lot of Hebrew practices were actually repugnant or repulsive to the Egyptians. The Egyptians aren't fans of the Hebrews. It was only on account of Joseph that these Hebrews were actually able to live in such good esteem with the Egyptians. Now, a new king has risen, doesn't know who Joseph is, and doesn't care. And so he actually takes these people and knows that because they're multiplying so quickly, they're going to be too great and mighty for Egypt. And so what he does is he says, let's go ahead and deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And so what they end up doing is they actually assign taskmasters over the Hebrews and make them do labor. So we're going to see kind of what sorts of labor they start doing, but they're multiplying so quickly that they actually start dealing ruthlessly with them. Pharaoh actually wants to kill off all of the males. And so he takes all the midwives who are delivering the babies for the Hebrews and says, hey, whenever one of these Hebrews gives birth to a son, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. And so you can see how much they actually fear how great the Hebrews are in their multitude, how much the Hebrews are actually multiplying. So they're becoming this big, great nation. And it actually has the Egyptians kind of shaking in their boots. So that kind of sets the crux then for the major conflict. Enter Moses, the main character of pretty much all of the rest of the Pentateuch. Yeah, it's a great tie-in to the ending of Genesis. And we have a terrible king in the land of Egypt. And out of this conflict, so right away we, we get to the conflict of the story of Exodus, right? So, I mean, the big conflict, remember, is that humanity sinned and brought sin and evil and death into the world. And we're looking for the resolution for someone to bring us out of that. So we're kind of taking a break of the big conflict and we have a small little um, epic forming here. Another uh, conflict arising of, okay, well, before we're going to go back to focusing on the guy who's going to come from the line of Abraham, who now is going to come from the line of Judah, 
we have to get back to the land, right? And so the big reason we need to get back to the land, not just because God promised it, but because of their mistreatment in Egypt. And so this mistreatment in Egypt, just as Dylan says, leads to the birth of a baby boy. No, not Christmas, not Jesus, but chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And she went and conceived and bore a son. And it was a tov child, just like the Hebrew word for the tree of knowledge of good and bad. Um, he was a good child. She looked at him. He was good. And something that's really important about this child that the author wants to show us is that he is a Levite. And so is his brother and sister. And this is going to be something really important later on, um, later in this book, and especially in the next book. If you know the next book, it's called Leviticus, or Leviticus, as normal people call it. Um, and so Moses is born under the harsh conditions that Moses, or sorry, that the king of Egypt set in place for um, Hebrew boys being born. And so, as Pharaoh told the uh, midwives, he says, all right, midwife says, uh, Hebrew woman goes into labor. If it's a boy, kill him. Kill all the Hebrew boys. They lie about it the first time they're confronted by Pharaoh. And the next time Pharaoh gives the decree, we'll throw all the boys into the Nile. And so this time Moses is thrown into the Nile, but it wasn't so much a throw as a gently putting into a basket. And if we're looking in chapter 2, verse 3, um, when she could no longer hide him, she took for him a basket. Um, that word for basket, the only other place in Scripture that's used is um, the ark in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. So um, the ark that delivered Noah and his family from the perils of the waters, in the same way, this ark is preserving Moses, God's chosen guide to deliver Israel out of the hands of Pharaoh in Egypt. Um, so he's delivering him out of these waters of the Nile. So pretty cool little similarity there, similar arcs, but our translators don't help us so much by calling it a basket here. Um, but so Moses is put in this ark. He's floated down the Nile. And who would find him except Pharaoh's daughter? Pharaoh's daughter sees this child. The baby was crying. Verse 6 says she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And so uh, Pharaoh's daughter went and called one of her servants and found a nurse to nurse this child. And sure enough, um, found Moses' mother, and Moses' mother gets paid to nurse and take care of her own child. So pretty cool deal, um, the way in which God makes this work out. And Pharaoh's daughter um, gets to name this child, and she names him Moses. Because, she said, this is down in verse 10, if you have Bibles and you're following along. She says, because I drew him out of the water. So she names him Moses. So we have Moses born. And it is unique in the respect that 
in spite of Pharaoh's decree to have all of the males killed, this guy survives. He's able to survive. And not only is he able to survive, he actually ends up in the very house of Pharaoh with his mother taking care of him. However, things aren't all hunky-dory. So he grows up in the house of Pharaoh to a point where the text doesn't specify, but he's grown up. That's all it says. Uh, And then he actually goes out and sees an Egyptian quarreling and beating with some Hebrews. And so what he does is he actually looks both ways, makes sure that no one's watching, and then he kills the Egyptian. He burrows him in the sand. And he thinks that he's done a good thing for his people, knowing that he's a Hebrew. However, he then sees some Hebrews quarreling among themselves the next day and goes up to them and says, why should you be quarreling among yourselves, your brothers? And they go, what are you going to do to us? Going to kill us like you did that Egyptian over there? And so Moses freaks out, and rightfully so. He thinks that what he has done in killing the Egyptian has become known. And sure enough, it eventually does. And so when it does become known to Pharaoh that Moses actually killed the Egyptian, he tries to kill Moses. And so Moses then flees to Midian. And so when he flees, he flees to this place called Midian. And there, uh, there's a priest of Midian uh, who had seven daughters. And these seven daughters, they come and draw water for their flock. However, some of the local shepherds cast them away from the well. So Moses stops and he helps out the daughters and actually waters their flock. And so they are then brought back to uh, their father's house and invited in. And so when he's invited in, he's given a wife. uh, Her name is Zipporah. And then she ends up giving birth to a son. And so they call his name Gershom. And the reason they call his name Gershom, it says in the text that Moses is a sojourner. So he calls him Gershom because I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And this was just a little interesting kind of side connection that I really took an interest in kind of pre-podcast when I was talking to Corey. It just is really interesting that up until this point, we have seen this idea of sojourning be a consistent theme throughout Genesis. And so all of the fathers of the Israelites, if you will. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they've all faced this sojourning in a foreign land that's completely not their own. And so once again, we have another protagonist, Moses, who is set up as a sojourner. This is a really important setting, just as we're pointing out things that are typological, either in settings or events. The author is hoping that we key in on some of these things. So like when Moses fled from Pharaoh in verse 15, he stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. And he leaves you hanging there. And we should be thinking, oh, what's my frame of reference in the Bible for when someone goes to a well? We should start hearing wedding bells, right? So we even see the author as he's writing, he goes and sits by a well just as when Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac, he goes by a well and finds Rebekah. Jacob, he goes back to the land of um, Abraham's homeland, his father's land, and he goes to a well, and there's where he finds Rachel. So again, um, for paying paying close uh, attention to the text, we'll be seeing these little cues 
that the author wants us to pick up on. So there's a little nugget for you. That's all. Like I said, at the very beginning of our little venture here into Exodus, Exodus and Genesis are linked, and we're going to see a whole bunch of that. It's not as though Exodus is completely and utterly separate from Genesis. Instead, they're meant to be read together. Crazy concept. So now going into verse 23, we have a new concept that's kind of introduced that's very interesting. It says, during those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So again, like I said, we're tying in once again to Genesis with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the covenant being made with them. And God remembers this covenant. It's kind of weird to speak of God as remembering. I mean, doesn't God know everything? Did he forget about the covenant? Corey, what do you think? You think God forgot about the covenant? No, of course God doesn't forget. He knows everything, right? And so we see this uh, text come to us as a great comfort, right? And we, we talk about God in ways in which we can relate. And so we remember things because we forget. So we sometimes talk about God in that way, we talk about God like a human. And the whole point of talking about God as a human, the fancy word anthropomorphism, um, here is just, just bring comfort, right? And the reason why God is hearing them now, right? It's not like God hasn't been hearing them, right? Or God hasn't been noticing them. God knew this was going to happen once they stepped foot in Egypt. But remember, um, back in Genesis chapter 15, God promised that Israel would get the promised land, but not before the iniquity of, I believe it's the Amorites or Ammonites, or it might be Amalekites. So one of the ites, I know, but it's once their um, iniquity gets high enough for God to punish them. But in the meantime, God's going to leave them in this foreign land for 400 years. So this time of hearing and remembering has come because the 400 years is up. And now God is going to take them to the promised land. And we were just introduced to our guy. Right. And so God saw the people of Israel. Well, yeah, of course, he saw them. He sees everything. Of course, he hears them. He hears everything. Of course, he remembers, although he never forgets, and the interesting point, and God knew. So in reading the story, we should say, oh, now it is time. The 400 years is up. God has found his guy Moses to do it. And now here we go. Here comes the story. Here comes the calling of the protagonist who's going to help the story move along. And with regard to the protagonist, one thing that we've been asking of every protagonist up until this point through Genesis is, is he the guy? And if you haven't listened to the Genesis series, the guy is in reference to Genesis 3.15, where God actually promises that there is going to be basically a messianic figure who is going to come from the seed of the woman and deliver 
everybody from this great evil that has happened based on humanity choosing their own wisdom. So there's going to be a figure who's going to come and make everything back to the way it should be. And so we've been asking, is this the guy? So that question might want to be in the back of your head as we explore Moses. Is he the guy? Who is this guy? Is he part of the capital T blessing that we talked about in Genesis? If you were listening maybe two episodes ago, we did point out the fact that the capital T blessing is kind of going to be on hold for a little while here. But still, that question should be in the back of your mind. We're going to be jumping in now to chapter three, and we're probably going to camp in chapter three and four for just a little bit because this is really important. And so now we have the protagonist introduced, Moses is on the scene, and we have the major conflict, at least of Exodus, set out before us. So the king of Egypt was persecuting the, uh, the Israelites. He was dealing shrewdly and harshly with them. They were slaves in this foreign land. And so God remembers them and, and rises up Moses to do something about this. And so that's what we're going to get into here in chapter three. So in chapter three, Moses encounters something very odd. He encounters a burning bush, says now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west of the side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And so we get the scene introduced now where God is contacting Moses. This is kind of the great call of the protagonist. Interestingly, there's a bunch of things that are going on kind of in the background that you might be tempted to skip over. First and foremost, which was perhaps most interesting to me, is the location of this event. This event is taking place on the mountain. But not only is it taking place on a mountain, it's taking place on a specific mountain, Mount Horeb. Do we know of Mount Horeb? Well, we actually have talked about it briefly, but Mount Horeb, we're going to come to find, if you know the story, is one and the same as Mount Sinai, simply called by a different name. And so Moses here is actually meeting God on Mount Sinai. Corey and I had talked in this podcast a bit uh, for a few episodes there about this big theme that is very prominent in the Bible uh, with regard to mountains or high places and trees and God, where oftentimes people will have great encounters with God on high places or mountains, and usually there's a tree involved. We saw that in Genesis frequently, not the least of which is the very beginning of Genesis with the Garden of Eden and the tree of knowing good and bad and the tree of life that are located at the center of the garden. So once again, we have a tree on top of a mountain and God manifesting himself in a tree, again, just like in Genesis, 
and calling out to Moses from the midst of this tree on top of Mount Sinai. It's pretty crazy. And, and it goes to show that this place is holy insofar as God actually says to Moses, this is a holy place. Don't even step onto this place with your shoes on. Take them off because the place where you're standing is holy ground, where the feet kind of represent the creatureliness of Moses. So by taking off his shoes, then he's actually recognizing the holiness of this place, that it's something other than just a normal creaturely location. Before you even get to Horeb, the mountain of God, we see that he's taken the flock to the west side of the wilderness. Right. And so if we go back to early chapters in Genesis, um, once Adam and Eve sin, there is an angel that God puts with the flaming sword um, facing east, right? Or on the east side of the trees. So people were put east. And so they, if they try to come back towards the tree, they'll meet a angel with a flaming sword, right? So when Cain sins, he's sent east out into the wilderness, right? And so in a wilderness, we're on the west side. And we have an angel, but not just any angel, not even like the angel who was put in the garden to guard the tree of life. Um, we have the angel of Yahweh. And we talked a little bit about the angel of the Lord as it pertained to this character visiting Abram when he was still childless and waiting on God to give him his promised son. And we see later that this angel that's called the angel of Yahweh was in fact God. We've seen this a couple of times now in Genesis. And so here it says the angel of Lord came out and appeared to him in a flame of fire. So we have lots of hyperlinks to a tree, to a fire next to a tree, an angel guarding it. Um, but now this is kind of messing with that category a little bit um, where it, the angel of the Lord is Yahweh himself and Yahweh and Moses um, start having this conversation. And that conversation really starts once, as Dylan said, Moses takes off his shoes and God calls this place holy ground. And if we're at all curious about who this God is, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Right? So Yahweh is the God we've been dealing with in all of this time. That's going to be significant. The idea of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with Yahweh in just a second. But at this point, in verse 7, we're still in chapter 3 here. Yahweh tells Moses, I've seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. I have uh, hear the cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them, to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a, uh, a land which is in the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. So all the things that God had promised to Abraham and then reiterated to his sons we're now coming back to that promise again. Okay, God 
remembers his covenant. Coming back to that anthropomorphism we just talked about above in the above chapter. And so God tells Moses, all right, verse 10, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that Moses rebuttals. And not just once, but here's the first rebuttal in verse 11 of chapter 3. Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God responds, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Okay, so big picture. God is trying to get the people of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. And the sign for that is Yahweh bringing the people onto this mountain, right? Mount Horeb, or by its other name, Mount Sinai. So the big goal is to get to the promised land. But the little goal that we're shooting for before then is that Yahweh will bring his people to his holy mountain, Mount Sinai. And so in that, we have the first rebuttal from Moses, the first calling from Yahweh. Dylan, anything else? No, I think you nailed that section. Let's go ahead and keep moving on uh, just so we can stay consistent with our time frame here. And so uh, moving on then from that verse 12, it is really important, like Corey pointed out, that the little goal is get the people to Mount Sinai. Interestingly, when it says, uh, but I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And it's not just you, Moses, will serve God on this mountain, but y'all, all of the Israelites will come and serve God on this mountain. And so that is basically what we're going to be looking for as kind of the first sign of success. Once Israel comes out and worships God on this mountain, we'll know we're on the right track. Keep that in your back of your mind. It's going to be very important as we move through the beginning of Exodus here. Jumping into verse 13, though, Moses said to God, uh, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And so this is going to be very important for our story moving forward. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And so we often hear this uh, in our evangelical circles talking about I am. We often uh, associate when Jesus says I am with this particular passage here. What this is in verse 14, when God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is God actually proclaiming to Moses the divine name. So God is actually saying to Moses, essentially, I am Yahweh. And so this is, if you want a big thousand dollar word, you can fold up in your, put in your back pocket. This is the tetragrammaton. We're going to see this now consistently uh, as God being referred to by the tetragrammaton or his divine name, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. And so that is going to be a big revelation that even though you've heard Corey and I talk about the name Yahweh in Genesis, this is the first time where that, that name is actually revealed to a character 
in the scriptures, even though it says it in the text, it doesn't actually have God speaking that to a character until now. So that's going to be really important. We're going to see uh, in another passage in our reading today where God actually says, I have not revealed myself as Yahweh to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. Instead, it's to you that I've revealed myself that way. And so God says to say, Yahweh has sent me to you. The Lord, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name, God's name, forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what you have been going through in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, all the ites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So once again, we get that promised land language reconfirmed here, where the goal ultimately, as Corey said, is to get to the promised land. So the little goal, worship on Mount Sinai, big goal, get back to Canaan. So we had an episode a few weeks back called Straight Out of Canaan. Maybe we'll call this one straight back to Canaan. Uh, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness. Wait, 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 hold on just a sec. Didn't God just say that he's going to bring them back to the land, Canaan? So now all of a sudden God's saying, go to Pharaoh and say, hey, let us go three days into the wilderness. So are they going to travel three days, get to Canaan real quick and hoof it back and that's it? Is that what God's talking about here? Well, no, not at all. But instead, we're going to see that, as God foretells here, that the people are going to go to Pharaoh. They're going to say, hey, let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice and worship the Lord our God. But, and this is in verse 19, God knows that the king of Egypt will not let them go unless he's compelled by a mighty hand. And so this is kind of getting a little bit more into the twilight zone here where God is actually telling them to do this, not because he expects for it to actually happen, but instead so that he can bring about punishment on the king of Egypt for actually taking these Israelites and treating them in the way that he has. So he is not going to let them go unless he's compelled by a mighty hand. So God is going to stretch out his hand and he's going to strike Egypt with wonders and uh, he'll do that. And then the king will let him go. And not only will they let him go, but all of the people should ask all the Egyptians for all their gold and they're going to give it to them because things are going to be so crazy that they're going to plunder the Egyptians and they're going to leave not just with themselves, but with all that the Egyptians have to offer. That was a great recap. Something that I always found interesting was the name Yahweh. And you talked about this a little bit, Dylan, but at Multnomah, we had a couple of excellent Hebrew professors, Carl Kutz and Rebecca Josberger. Um, so big shout out to them. They have a great Hebrew textbook and grammar out um, that makes it a lot easier to learn Hebrew. So if you're interested at all, um, check out Dr. Kutz and Dr. Josberger's grammar. But something that um, Dr. Josberger said in one of her classes about the giving of um, Yahweh's personal name 
Um, so I've heard lots of different things, right? It's like, oh, it means that Yahweh is eternal. I will be always. But Kutz and Jasperger's stance on this, which is a pretty good stance to have because they're well-trained, um, it's just God's self-defining nature, right? And so Yahweh defines himself, right? Just as we've seen from the beginning of Scripture, Yahweh is the one who defines what's good and bad. Yahweh is the one who created. And so Yahweh is the one uncreated thing. And so he's the only thing or person who can accurately describe himself. So he's saying, I am who I am, which may be different than what we think he is. And so it's really important as Yahweh gives his self-proclaimed name, his personal name, Yahweh, that we have a view that coincides with Yahweh's view of himself. And uh, pretty cool. At the end of the book, a little Easter egg, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, um, Yahweh gives a self-description of himself. And it's actually the most quoted verse throughout the Bible because it's Yahweh talking about his character and who he is and what he is like. And so it's really important, starting here, when Yahweh says, I am who I am. And kind of fun little facts, not nearly as important. Um, Yahweh says, Ehyeh, and that's because he's I am. And we say Yahweh, that's because he is. Um, and so the great I am is self-defining. And so super powerful moment for Moses to get this personal name, but also that we better realize at all times that we're on board with who Yahweh says he is and not our own ideas of who God is and put God into our own box. So a great truth out of this is don't put Yahweh in a box unless it's a box that he chooses to put himself in. Ironically, that's going to happen at the end of the book. Yahweh will put himself in into a box. Another Easter egg. All right, I'm done giving away Easter eggs. Let's go in the chapter four, right? And so again, what Dylan last recapped was um, the Israelites are going to plunder the Egyptians as they leave, right? With the big exodus. And so chapter four, verse one, Moses rebuttals again, third time. But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, Yahweh did not appear to you. Yahweh said to Moses, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. Uh, but, you know, if you're familiar with the story, so Yahweh says, all right, go ahead and pick up the snake by, a by the tail. And so as he did that, it becomes a staff again. And so it says, do this and people will believe that the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob appeared to you. And again, not that Yahweh needs to give him another sign, but he's so gracious. He gives Moses another sign, uh, kind of a scary sign. If you thought the snake was scary, I wonder if like God just kind of messing with him here. Oh, you thought that was scary. Well, check this out. Put your hand inside your cloak. He puts his hand inside his cloak and he pulls his hand out and it's leprous or some sort of skin disease. It's white as snow. And God was nice enough to do it the first time when he says, well, put your hand back inside your cloak. 
and he put his hand back and he took it out and it was restored like new. I just I think it'd be so funny if Yahweh said, All right, now okay, now put your hand back inside your cloak and he puts it in and pulls it out and it's still white as snow, just to make Moses freak out a little bit. That's like what I would do if I was God. I would just kind of mess with people and be really sarcastic. But God is much more gracious than I am. And so um, God even gives Moses the first sign that he will do. Um, he says, all right, so if they don't believe you or listen to you um, with the first sign, the staff becoming a snake or your hand becoming leprous, here's what I'm going to do. He says in verse nine, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on dry ground and the water that you take from the Nile, it will become blood on the dry ground. Right. So kind of a, a small picture of what's going to become um, a plague that's going to affect all the water in all of the Nile in Egypt. There was the third rebuttal from Moses in continuing to roll on. Verse 10, Moses said to Yahweh, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. So if you guys have ever heard the teaching that Moses had a stutter or something like that, this is where they get it from. Uh, he says, I'm, I'm slow to speech. I can't do it. And Yahweh comes back with a very good point saying, who made man and who makes his mouth and who makes his tongue? Is it not I, Yahweh? Therefore go, I will be your mouth. And teach you what you shall speak. What a cool moment where God's literally saying, I will speak through you. And what a cool opportunity Moses has there. But, of course, Moses has another rebuttal. Um, this is the fifth and final rebuttal Moses gives to Yahweh in this. Uh, verse 13, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. So notice Moses doesn't really have another excuse or another rebuttal. God has answered everything to a really solid degree. And so he's like, you know what? Just, I just don't want to do it. Like, I don't have any more excuses. Please send someone else. And in verse 14, we have a very, very interesting verse. Verse 14, it says, The anger of Yahweh was kindled against Moses. A pretty cool Hebrew idiom here is that the nose of Yahweh grew hot. And we, we kind of can picture this idiom, especially if we uh, think of like a little kid getting angry and you see them get angry and they scrunch up their nose. We as adults are a little bit better at hiding our emotions, but kids are so raw when they get angry, you see the heat of their nose as, as goes the Hebrew idiom. Um, our translators say, and his anger grew hot because that's something we use in our language today. You know, that guy's a hothead. He gets angry quickly. Um, but something about Yahweh that we're going to see in that Easter egg verse I gave out, Exodus 34, 6, is that Yahweh is slow to anger. And the Hebrew in that is that Yahweh's nostrils are long, right? So he's got a long fuse before he goes off and explodes. So in all of scripture, so Genesis, a lot of terrible stuff has happened, and not once was God described as being angry. 
And even in this conversation with Moses, it's only at the fifth rebuttal in which Yahweh gets angry. And now let's look at the response, the second half of verse 14. So in his anger, this is how Yahweh responds by saying, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And you will speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be your mouth and with his mouth. And will teach you both what to do. Pretty cool. I mean, Yahweh gives him an out in his anger. I mean, it looks a lot different than my anger, a lot of human anger. You know, I, I imagine like a parent dealing with a kid saying, all right, clean your room. But why? I don't want to. I'm tired after all these excuses. And as a parent, I'd be like, shut up. Do it because I told you to. But Yahweh just gives something to help. He's problem solving in his anger. So out of this and Yahweh's character, we learn he's slow to anger through the story. And we also learn a great model for anger, right? And so we see Yahweh get angry. He says, Aaron's coming out to you in the wilderness. It's almost like God knew that he would need to send Aaron out to him. And so he says, go ahead, um, go out to meet Aaron and speak to the people and take your staff and do the signs I give you. I did suggest that we ask the question, maybe is Moses the guy at the very beginning of this episode? And now you see pretty clearly, just as we did with all of the other prospective guys, that Moses is not the guy. As with many of the protagonists that we've seen up until this point, Moses is flawed, just as most humans are. And so we see Moses having a lack of faith kind of being contrasted uh, over and against someone, say, like Abraham, for example, who believes God, it's credited to him as righteousness. Here we actually see Moses having such a lack of faith that for the first time in the scriptures, God is angry and is angry at Moses. So uh, we can probably pretty safely say that Moses is not the guy, yet we're still going to be following this guy. And remember what we said in our Genesis talks about protagonists, where just because someone is as a protagonist doesn't necessarily mean they are a model character. And so Moses, just as many characters do, has his own flaws. And so now we're going to be moving on a little bit, jumping into verse 18. Moses goes back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. Jethro says, okay. So we kind of have another hyperlink here to, you know, Jacob, except in Jacob's case where he goes to his father-in-law and says, hey, let me leave. His father-in-law goes, no, how about you stay a little longer, maybe a lot longer, maybe even longer still. Uh, here, Jethro actually says, yeah, sure, go back. Uh, so he says, go in peace. And the Lord uh, said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life. They're dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and they ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. As they're going in verse 24, we see a very interesting story that Corey and I were talking about at the beginning of the podcast. It talks about how the Lord meets Moses and his wife at a lodging place that they had stopped at along the way. And when the Lord comes, the Lord actually comes to kill Moses. 
So in verse 25, Zipporah, his wife, takes a flint and cuts off her son's foreskins and touches Moses' feet with them. And he says, surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he, that is God, let them alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. This is kind of a weird aside. God comes to kill the guy that he just sent to go back to Egypt to save these Israelites. And so Corey and I were kind of tossing some ideas back and forth as to what we thought this meant, because it is kind of an odd little insertion here. Ultimately, the conclusion that we came to is what Corey suggested, that Moses is ultimately expendable, just as any protagonist. God doesn't need the character that he's using. Instead, God is choosing to use certain characters for his good pleasure, but ultimately God does not need any of them. God doesn't need Moses. So ultimately, if the protagonist doesn't choose to follow God, that is, if in this case, if Moses failed to keep the covenant by not circumcising his child, God has every right to dispose of him because he doesn't need him. And this particular protagonist isn't following the covenant. And so that was kind of something that we were tossing around. Corey might explain it a little bit better since it was his thought in the first place. Corey, do you want to chime in here real quick? Ah, I hoping you want to call on me. <laughs> Only being slightly facetious because it, it is a pretty tough passage. Yahweh doesn't need any person, right? Something that a lot of pastors and I like to say is that God uses me despite me. It's nothing special about me. It's nothing special about Moses, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham. Um, but that's just who God is. Something about God is that he wants to work with us. And that's why he made us in his image. So throughout the entire story of scripture, God doesn't just get up and do anything on his own after creation. He always does it with someone. He calls us in to work with him. And now, we just always mess things up, starting from the beginning, where he wants to work with us and give us choice to eat of any tree we want. We want the wrong tree, of course, but this is just who God is. He wants to work with people. So again, it shows something amazing about God, but also something here is that he's using Moses, one of his people, to free his people. And so God also shows the importance of the covenant of circumcision. All right, this isn't something to be taken lightly, as it was by Levi and Simeon, as they tricked the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem took it lightly and did it just to gain a uh, trading partner. God says, this is a really serious covenant. Surprisingly, Zipporah, his wife, knew what was going on. Moses was just going to get killed. And so his wife's the one who had to do the circumcising. It's the one who had to touch the blood on his feet. She calls her husband a bridegroom of blood, which is a really odd thing to call him. But anytime we see blood being used in the first few books of the Bible, it's all about covenant. Um, the blood of the covenant, the sacrifice needing to be given for the covenant, and bridegroom throughout the Bible is usually used for um, God and his covenant people, right? And Jesus and the New Testament authors take on the same imagery. But all that to say, just basically long drawn out of what Dylan said, God doesn't need Moses, but he chooses 
to use him. And God says his covenant of circumcision is really important to him. And so God was going to enact just punishment, even though he just chose this guy. And so we we come and take this away, realizing God's serious about his covenant and serious about justice and works with people despite people being people and fallen. So to finish up chapter four, we're going to jump into verse 27 and kind of wrap it up here. Interestingly, in verse 27, it goes, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And so he went there and met him on the mountain of God. Well, prior to verse 18, Moses was already on the mountain of God. And then 18 through 26 seems to kind of be an aside where Moses is sent to Egypt, but Oh, psych, not yet. He's actually still on the mountain. Corey and I were kind of speculating as to why that might be. And ultimately, my suggestion is that it could be, and maybe take this with a grain of salt, uh, it could be the fact that this is inserted here by the author to kind of reaffirm that very theme that Corey was just talking about, where ultimately God doesn't need Moses. So he enters this here after Moses rebuttals five times and also doesn't circumcise the son. So the author then is saying, ultimately, God doesn't need Moses. He's using Moses in spite of Moses, just as Jacob was used in spite of Jacob. All of these characters are flawed. But God is still choosing to work by human means through Moses and Aaron in this case. So up before verse 18, we saw that God said, Aaron's already on the way, and now we see Aaron arriving. So we're introduced to Aaron. This isn't the first time we did see him at the birth story of Moses as well. So they're both Levites. They're both in the priestly line. They're both going to be going before Pharaoh. Aaron's going to be speaking. Moses is going to be performing these divine sign acts that God has given to him. So that ultimately the main purpose is that Egypt will be punished and Israel will be freed and be able to worship God on the mountain. And then ultimately be able to return to Canaan. So that is basically what we are going for. And that is what this chapter has set up. We kind of ran out of time as far as getting through everything we were hoping to get through today with five and six. There are a few things we'd like to point out in those, but we'll go ahead and save those for the beginning of next week's episode when we get into the actual plagues that are brought against Egypt and then the exodus from Egypt itself. So we'll go ahead and wrap up there before we do. Corey, any last concluding thoughts on your part? I mean, there's so much good stuff in here. And um, I just want to talk so much more about the name of Yahweh, even though we already talked about it. So look for more of that to come. Yeah, we don't want to inundate you guys with, uh, with too much in one episode. So fortunately for us, we have content galore. So stay tuned for future episodes. Guys, thank you for tuning into this week's episode. If you guys do enjoy the podcast, if you enjoyed this week's episode, please do jump onto iTunes, Apple Podcasts, anything like that, and leave a review. The review does help out our visibility. Shameless plug there just so that other people can be blessed by the podcast as well. Also, check out the website. The Bible is a story dot com there in the little menu you'll see a donate button if you feel so inclined and so led us to donate and help us out we do pay for everything out of our own pocket so if you'd like to keep the show rolling you can do that through that donate button it'll take you to the patreon page 
Finally, if you guys want to chat, ask questions, anything like that, we have an email. Scripturechronicles at gmail.com is the email address. Definitely feel free to shout out to us and we will get back to you as quickly as we can. We'd love to dialogue with you guys as you're going through this material with us. Again, remember that we are not saying that our interpretation of every single thing that we're going through here is correct. Don't rely on Corey and Dylan as the end all interpretation of these scriptures. Instead, read the scriptures for yourself, view them as a story and understand the method that we're trying to get across uh, and utilize that for yourselves. Actually pick up the book. Don't just rely on Dylan and Corey to comment on the book. Again, guys, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. As per usual, common exit here. Shalom, adios. My mic was muted. Dang it. Missed it. One more time on the count of three. You ready, Corey? One, two, three. Shalom, adios. We should still use the first one. (laughs) 